Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. If you don't know what it is, then how do you defeat it, Jack? How's your friend Adrian being treated? He's not going to get any justice. So now you see it, don't you? Caesar propped himself up on one elbow. The problem is justice, equality, fairness, isn't it? Yes, Jack brightened with a sense of relief. And if you see the problem, then you have to do something about it. But if you use violence, then any change you seek will not last. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm talking to John D. Simone, author of The Road to Delano, a story about a teenager who learns that his father died because he angered other growers by trying to offer decent conditions to the farm workers he hired to work his grapevines. In 1960s Delano, California. Jack and his best friend Adrian should be focusing on their senior year of high school and the baseball playing that could be their tickets to college education. Instead, they're both drawn into a huge struggle between those in power and those in the early United Farm Workers Union. Before the year is over, Jack will become proficient at poker, learn how to sh- shoot a firearm, and save a few lives. He'll also put everyone and everything he loves in danger. Hi, John. Thanks for joining me today. Hello, Galit. Thank you for having me. So this book opens in 1933 with the story of Sugar Duncan, a grower and gambler who angers his fellow growers by supplying decent housing to his workers. How did you come up with him as a character? Uh, Through research. uh, I'd already had the other characters for the book. And uh, I I have a favorite used bookstore. And uh, I read, I found a series of essays. And in there was a grower who actually had done this. And this happened to him. He was not um, killed as a result, but he was run out of the valley. So based on fact... So what came first, the research or the decision to write the book? Um, It was while I was teaching, I ran across a series of essays that I used in class on uh, nonviolence, the uses of nonviolence throughout history and uh, civil disobedience. And in there were a series of essays, the usual guys, Gandhi and and such and such, and uh, ran across Cesar Chavez as a Californian. I knew about Cesar Chavez but I never knew the details. And that sent me on a five-year quest to really understand what he was doing, how he did it, and how he accomplished something in California that had never been done before. hundred years mm-hmm. of strife in the Central Valley had no one had ever done what he did. Hmm. After Sugar Duncan dies, Jack's mother, Shirley, gets cheated out of most of the land. Why was it possible for these growers to accumulate so much power? Um, 
the, the dynamics of, of farmland, owning farmland, and uh, they're a huge sector of our economy here in California, huge sector. And, you know, before this is before Silicon Valley. So these people were the drivers of a lot of the economy uh, in the Central Valley and still are, even though they're overshadowed. So uh, land, if you know the right people, you can leverage mortgages, you accumulate it, and you grow crops and there's cash in crops. Hmm. So it's 1968 and Jack, the son, is tasked one Saturday morning with selling the combine that his father had bought with hopes of getting enough cash to pay with hopes to get enough cash to pay back taxes. What can you say about the guy who stops Jack? Well, Herm Gordon um, is a indeed a character that came out of thin air. And um, he's one of those guys that every writer uh, experiences um, that, you know, appears, appears in the narrative. And using a, a mythic structure, he would be the mentor, the one who knows the secrets, one who knows where the bodies are buried, literally, and, um, and is able to come alongside our hero and give him some instruction. So Hermit is although started out as just a figment of my imagination, ended up being a very key character. Mm -hmm. Why, knowing that Jack's father had been a gambler, does Herm give Jack his father's old deck of cards? Yeah. So I'm using games. There's three big games in this story. And two of them are symbolic and representative they're smaller games within a larger game. And the big game is life, is agriculture, is farming, is, is making a, turning a profit on something that, uh, an industry that's based on the vicissitudes of the weather. Uh, you know, if you get a, a freeze at an inopportune time, all of your cash goes down the tubes. And this happens. So... I'm using them as metaphors, and I realize that, um, you know, the thing to teach a young man is not how to gamble, um, would be considered a virtue. But in Jack's case, uh, it's a symbolism of, of a bigger game, ones that have to be run by rules. So the smaller games, if you don't know the rules, you lose. And that happens also in the bigger game in a different way. Mm. That was my intention. So, but why does Herm teach Jack specifically how to play Texas Hold'em? And why does Herm think, think it's so important for Jack to learn the power of a good bluff? Uh, I'd have to, yeah. Um, because what's happening, this is also symbolic of what's happening in the farm worker uh, lives. And that um, most all of the the techniques that the growers were using to um, to keep wages low and working conditions poor. If you would think of them in terms of a big bluff, they didn't have any right to do that. So um, there's bluffs all the way through the book. In every, every instance, there's bluffs. There's bluffs in the, in the baseball game. You know, everyone's trying to outwit everyone else. But there's a moral center to the book. 
And that to me is Cesar Chavez. Mm -hmm. So the growers claim that the unions are run by communist agitators, kind of like what the current government's claiming about protesters today. So, and compares the, the growers compare the grow. I'm sorry. Um, who does this? Somebody, I, I didn't write it down, but someone in the book compares the growers' tactics with Hitler's brown shirts. Well, in the 30s, this goes way back, and this is that would have been um, Adrian Sanchez, the other main character we haven't mentioned yet. So there's two main characters, Jack, the son of a, uh, a grower, and Adrian, the son of a farm worker. So you have both sides, and these are these are gen- these young boys, not young, they're high school seniors on the cusp of adulthood, are teammates, and they're grappling with these deep moral issues. And what you have in, in, um, in these, these young men, they're grappling with adult issues. And that is, are we going to use violence as a way to get what we want? And the reason why that was important for me to point out the history is because in the early 30s, the 20s and 30s, the only way that they could put down strikes was to use violence, which is very much like what Hitler did with his brown shirts in the streets. He sent thugs into the street. If people didn't agree with them or do his, uh, do his will, they were beaten. So thuggery and violence is, is a fascist tacti- tactic. Mm-hmm. And Cesar Chavez knew that if he went that route, he would be defeated. And he believed adamantly in the virtue and value of nonviolent action, very much like John Lewis and um, the Reverend uh, Martin Luther King and all of the um, the freedom writers. Uh, they used nonviolence, but you have to remember something. Communists were real. They're not a make-believe. Communists were organizing in the valley since the, since the uh, foment of the um, conclusion of the Bolshevik Revolution. The only people organizing poor people were either communists, socialists, or people like Saul Linsky, who was neither. And the rest were, so, you know, the communist leaders knew about organizing. And so there were communists in the valley, and there were communists in the 30s, the 40s. Communists went into hiding because the whole economy changed. And in the 50s, you know, the the communist agitators, some of them were actually put in jail and spent lengthy times in jail. So it was it was common to call someone that is using organization tactics a communist. They did it in the South with the coal miners in Birmingham. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a common tactic, but not totally untrue. Cesar Chavez was not a communist. He was a devout Catholic. And this is what derailed them. They could not make that accusation stick. Well, that whole um, the story about the grape boycott is what what drew me to your book, because I remember boycotting table grapes when I was a kid um, in middle school. And uh, it was a very powerful. It was, I think, also iceberg lettuce. Right. Um, Lettuce. Yes. Yeah. So 
And Cesar Chavez plays an important role in, in the book, in addition to playing an important role in the history of the United Farm Workers. Could you tell a little tell a little about him and what he accomplished? Um, he was a um, started out as a. a his parents were uh, from Arizona, and they lost their farm uh, in the 30s. Uh, a lot of people lost their farm. They came uh, to California in the 30s and were migrant workers. And so Cesar Chavez grew up in the field with his family. And um, he, you know, probably attended 30 schools by the time he was in eighth grade. And um, at eighth grade, he dropped out. Uh, worked in the fields full time. So he saw firsthand what was going on. But he was a very intelligent man, very inquisitive. And um, through a series of events, met some people, a particularly Catholic priest, who um, asked him point blank, do you like the way you're living? Do you like the way your family had to live? Do you like the way uh, your your friends and your, and your um, you know, your relatives are living in these, in these rundown conditions? So um, the, he was challenged personally, and he began reading um, the Catholic literature on, on work and um, the moral duty of the employer to the employee and the employee to the employer, reading about Gandhi, reading about the, the Catholic martyrs who, who used nonviolence and at that time. So no one had ever used, before Cesar Chavez, no one had ever used the principle of nonviolent action in a labor strike. It was used down in the South to integrate the lunch counters and integrate businesses. It was used in the South to integrate the buses, but no one had ever used it in the workplace to protest unjust working conditions. Mm-hmm. And so that was his, that was what was unique about him, and he maintained that that mantra of nonviolence. And he broke the back of resistance after uh, a lot of anguish and a lot of work. The theory moving forward to your book was written by Mark Grossman, spokesperson of the Cesar Chavez Foundation. He started volunteering for Chavez in the '60s and later became a speech writer, writer and personal aide. How did you get that to happen? Um, I approached um, Paul Chavez in a letter. Paul Chavez is Caesar's son, and he uh, runs the foundation, which does a lot of great work with uh, poor farm workers and poor people all over the country. And he didn't know anything about a novel. You know, he had never, uh, you know, that's just not his bailiwick. I'd asked him to endorse it. So he sent it over to Mark Grossman, who worked with Caesar Chavez personally for 15 years. And Mark really liked the book and offered to help. And um, and so I'm very grateful. Subsequently, I've been able to meet uh, Paul Chavez and give him a copy of the book, and they're very pleased with it. Um, um, Jack wants to do something about Sabrina's mother. Why is it so difficult? Could you talk about that a little? Sabrina's um, mother has been uh, unfortunately affected by the overspray, which happens all the time in of insecticides in fields. And this overspray, you know, affects different people. The pesticides affect people in different ways. With her, you know, it it um, affected her lungs. It could affect 
um, you know, a persistent cough, it poisons. So she's been poisoned by insecticides. And Jack um, meets Sabrina in the fields when he's trying to recover the property and offers to help. He feels compassion for him. He feels empathy. So, um, you know, that that's a main plot point in the book. And it's a true event that happens uh, less so now, but still happens. And that pesticides are a real issue with the farm workers, you know, handling food that have been freshly sprayed, etc. And I touch on it in the book. Yeah. But why was it so hard for Jack to help her? Well, it wasn't. If, if, if the grower who owned that property that Jack was on knew that he was on the property helping his, his uh, workers, he would have been, um, could have been jailed, could have been ostracized, could have been beaten. Um, it just wasn't a popular thing to do. Hmm. So Cesar Chavez tries to get Jack to understand that the problems in the world are justice, equality, and fairness. And to avoid violence, Jack might not have learned the lesson about nonviolence. What do you want the reader to learn from that? What I want the reader to learn from that, which is the essence of the book, is that uh, violence doesn't get, in, in our democracy, violence doesn't get you anywhere. And if violence doesn't accomplish what the reforms that you really that are really needed so we have an imperfect democracy but it's the best in the world and it can be reformed and martin luther king proved that caesar chavez has proved that and many others have proved that so it's you know we our nation was born with a with a birth defect but it's a self-correcting defect. That's the beauty of our constitutional system. And Cesar Chavez, as a, um, as a um, patriotic American, understood that and understood that his people had the same rights and same privileges as any other worker. I mean, if you work in an office and, you're, and your employer put the bathroom one mile away and docked you when you walked there, you would say that's not fair, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's not fair. But that's what happened all the time in the fields. And so they're working by the peace, but they don't have water. They don't have um, protection against sun, uh, you know, extreme heat, um, uh, bathroom breaks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he's just saying, look, we want to be treated like any other worker in America. We're not asking for anything special. So that's, um, that's, to me, Cesar Chavez was heroic uh, in that, that he was willing to put his life on the line to prove a point that our, uh, what needs to be reformed in our democracy. And when you say that we have a birth defect, what specifically are you referring to? Well, it's the one that's being discussed right now. All men are created equal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, but we're not all treated equal. Right. So think about that. Well, you know, it's been a long history. Women had to win their rights and they got them. You know, we know what happened with, with uh, slavery here in this country. It's a 
It's a horrible part of our history, but they've won that battle. But they haven't completely won it. So, um, and Cesar Chavez was saying, this is an incomplete part of our American history here. We have to right this wrong. And so it doesn't matter how you feel about unions, non-unions. He was working for the right of the common field worker to have the same employee benefits that you and I get when we go to the office. And he was, a, he was an American citizen. So when Absolutely. you say people, Absolutely. you mean the farm workers were his people because that's who he took as his people. That was Well, you know, I mean, we all have people we hang around with. Yeah. And, um, you know, and all of my friends are most all of them are college graduates and all of Cesar Chavez's friends, you know, had eighth grade education. They'd spent their migrant, uh, their years, you know, working in the fields and they're trying to get either get themselves out or get their kids out. Some of my best friends are the sons of farm workers. And so um, that's where I learned about Texas Hold'em. Mm. Um, growers tried to get at the time, then Governor Ronald Reagan, to veto the resolution that authorized farm workers and itinerant laborers to receive workers comp and other benefits. What happened with that and what's going on now? Well, they've they've eventually won those rights, but for whatever reason, you gotta remember here in California, this is this is pre Silicon Valley. There's no Google, there's no Facebook, there's no billion dollar corporation. Farm the farming uh, industry was probably fifty percent of our income. It was huge. And still is huge, but it's been dwarfed by all of these big, other big companies. And uh, the farmers did not want to pay into the unemployment because it would raise their cost. And to, to just say a word for the farmers in their defense, they're competing against farmers in Mexico and Chile. And those, those farmers are not paying into unemployment insurance. Mm -hmm. So our food costs would have gone up a tick, you know, a fraction of a cent. And uh, Chavez's view of that is, look, you know, if people understood our working conditions, that was the whole reason for the boycott. If they understood the the circumstances that we have to pick the food that they eat on their table, they wouldn't mind paying a tenth of a cent more. And they Mm -hmm. haven't. So, yeah. So uh, back to Herm, he tells Jack that there are a million ways to cheat. Let's discuss. Yeah. So, but can you see the, the metaphorical illusion there? Oh, yeah. So there's a million ways uh, to cheat in a card game. There's a million ways to cheat in a baseball game. And there's a million ways to cheat your labor. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm just trying to use... You know, without uh, some of the comments I've had is that, you know, I've written a very good social novel that doesn't preach. So I think that you can get away from preaching um, if you use metaphors that allude to it, that resonate with it, that not every reader is going to get. I mean, some of the comments I've gotten is, wow, way too much baseball. Well, you know, 
um, I'm trying to make a point. And, you know, make a point, you have to write a scene. So um, I don't think I don't think the story would resonate as much if I didn't use all three games. Okay. I know that uh, it's more common for some people to enjoy detailed um, discussions about baseball and poker. I'm not one of those people, <laughs> but I read it. And I sat through a lot of Little League games all the way through my son's high school career. He was a left-handed pitcher. So I, I understood the lingo, but uh, usually don't. I don't usually last through a whole game watching it or reading about it, but I tried (laughs) and it was interesting. And it did. You're right. Now that you're speaking about it in this way. Yeah, it did. It showed a lot about these million ways of cheating that we're discussing. And, uh, you know, cheating, cheating employees has been going on in every industry forever. I mean, America, it, we, we, as Americans, we don't hold any, um, uh, we don't win any prize for being the best at it. I think across the board, employees are treated pretty fairly by employ, employers. But it's been a long road uh, to um, perfect our labor laws in this country that protect all of us. Mm-hmm. And um, so in certain segments of our economy have lagged behind. Domestic workers, farm workers, they were specifically excluded from the 1933 National Labor Relations Bill that FDR pushed through um, the Congress and the Senate and got approved. And that gave the right of, of employees to collective bargaining. At that moment, when that passed, uh, Galat, what happened was there was no need for communist organizers because now employees had, it had the law on their side. They could just simply say to their employer, Oh, we want to take a vote. It's the law. But to get the vote, to get that passed, FDR caved to the Southern Democrats and he excluded domestic workers and farm workers. Can you imagine? I mean, we can only just, we can easily surmise why they would do that. The um, southern workers, you know, the southern uh, farmers who had sharecroppers in their land, they didn't want their sharecroppers organizing and coming to them and sitting on the doorstep and demanding their rights. Weren't the southern Democrats the same people that brought us the Jim Crow laws? You got it. Okay. So these are cut from the same cloth. And they and so the ramifications of that is played out 40 years later, 30 years later, when simple farm workers go to their employer and said, we want to negotiate with you as a group. We want better wages, better working conditions, bathrooms in the field, water in the field, protection from the heat. And they said, go take a hike. We'll get new workers. So that's the dilemma Cesar Chavez faced. And so against all odds, he and Larry Italong and Helen uh, Huerta, uh, who was instrumental in this, uh, helping. Cesar Chavez wasn't the only one, although he's the face of it, of, of this protest, uh, did, did a good deed for the poorest of the poor in our country. And, and we're a better country for it. 
So, John, what are you working on next? Well, I would really like to write a sequel to this, and that is take up some of these other characters, because there was two strikes that finally settled the issue of farm labor's right to organize. And that went on from 72 to 75, when Governor Brown finally put an end to it and signed the first legislation in the country to give farm workers the right to organize. They no longer had to protest or do anything else. They could just go to the employer and say, look, we want to organize and we're going to um, take a vote on it. We're going to pick a union to represent us. Mm-hmm. There's no more battles. And so I'm not saying there's no more strikes. I'm just saying <clears throat> the major battle of the right to um, to organize <clears throat> is over. Is Jack Duncan going to be in the next one? I think so, but um, there, there are other characters who, who have a lot to say that, that will um, appear. Okay. I will look forward to seeing it when it comes out. Thank you so much for joining me today, John. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me, and I'm sure glad you enjoyed the book. 